Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, great to have you here. Uh, we're just going to spend some time in prayer uh, before Andy comes and uh, continues our series in the uh, Gospel of Luke. So if you could just uh, bow with me in prayer. There'll be, if you're a visitor here or you're, you're new to the church, there'll be some people's names that you probably won't know. The Lord knows those names, and we can trust that he hears our prayers. Uh, so we will continue to um, place them before the throne of grace. So let's, um, let's bow in prayer together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love, your great mercy uh, to us. Father, we thank you that you sent your one and only Son to die on our behalf and give us new life. We thank you that when we put our faith and trust in the risen Lord, we have riches that are in abundance. We have a spiritual inheritance which is beyond our wildest comprehension. Knowing that, Father, you place within our hearts your Holy Spirit who gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that uh, in and out through different uh, aspects of this week, we've been unfaithful. We ask for your repentance over that, Lord. Help us consistently to turn our eyes to Jesus. Help us consistently to marvel at the salvation that's been wrought on our behalf. Father, as your people develop in us a heart that loves you more and more each day, help us turn to the cross each day to realize the cost of our salvation. And Father, we just also want to pray for the things we see going on in this world. Lord, we acknowledge you are creator and sustainer of all things. We acknowledge that you are sovereign over all things. But Father, our hearts break as we see multiple hundreds of thousands of people being displaced from homes, being pursued by men who desire only evil. Father, move us with a heart of compassion. Father, as we read through the Gospel of Luke and as we've been studying through this book, Lord, we understand that we are to love our neighbours. We are to love because you have first loved us. Compel us with your compassion. Compel us to meet the needs of uh, those around about us. But above all, allow us to have the balance to meet needs but proclaim the love of Jesus. Father, we pray for our government. We pray as the, our government makes decisions about uh, refugees, makes decisions about uh, military issues. Give our government wisdom, Father. But above all, Father, change our hearts to be uh, compassionate for your people. Father, we pray for the health of our own uh, congregation. 
We pray you'll continually uh, ground us in your love. We pray for the physical needs of many. You know them, Lord. Uh, we pray that through the different trials of uh, ill health, etc., that our hearts will be hearts full of resolve. Abound in us uh, your grace, we pray, to continually proclaim your name in the good times and in the bad. Father, we pray for our witness as a church amongst our community. We pray for other churches within this region. Father, we pray collectively we will proclaim, proclaim the name of Jesus. Because we are a needy nation. We're a nation that is far from you. And Father, we pray for a revival amongst this area here in Melbourne. And Father, we pray that you will enable us to be faithful in doing our part. Father, these things we just lay before your throne of grace, seeking your wisdom, seeking your counsel, seeking your guidance. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Andy, where are you? For those of you who don't know Andy, this is Andy. For those of you who do know Andy, this is Andy. And Andy has the privilege of uh, sharing from God's Word today. We as a church are going through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And I uh, look forward to hearing from today, Andy. So, Thank you. I've got to pay more attention uh, in these uh, preaching team meetings. Because um, I discovered as I was getting ready for this, oh, I've got such a long passage. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, uh, but let me pray. Uh, and uh, this prayer is not just for me, um, but it's for you as well, because uh, as I've been reading this passage, uh, God's been speaking to my heart, and so I pray that he would also speak to yours. So let me pray. Uh, Lord God, you know our hearts. Uh, you know which way they're facing. Uh, you know everything about us, Lord, and you know also how to change our hearts. Only you can do that. Uh, Lord, as you speak to us through your word, I ask that uh, my words would fall away, but your words would be clear, and that they would go right to the heart, uh, to every one of us, and that we'd hear what you have to say to us. Amen. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, if you've got one of these little uh, orange Bibles, or if you've got a uh, full-size version, uh, find your way to Luke 17, and we're picking up at verse 20, and believe it or not, we're going to go all the way through to chapter 19, verse 10. See what I mean when I said I've got a long passage. By way of background, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's with his disciples, and as he's been traveling, different things have been happening, and, and Luke is recording the different things that Jesus said and that Jesus did. Jesus knows why he's going to Jerusalem. It's to face the cross. And he says as much uh, in this very passage. And he knows. He knows he's going to be not just killed, but he's going to be beaten and he's going to be humiliated. And he also knows that he's going to be vindicated by resurrection. And in this section of the journey, as Jesus is travelling with his disciples, 
They're together. They, they, this is what disciples do. They have life together um, with the person they're following. Luke captures six particular parables or interactions of Jesus in this little block. And take a breath. We're not going to do all six. But they, the six are these. The persistent widow, which is a parable. It's a story. The Pharisee and the tax collector, another parable or a story. Uh, Jesus' interaction with little children. Jesus' interactions with the rich ruler. Jesus' interaction with the blind beggar. And Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. We know from other parts in the Bible, particularly the Gospel of John, John says if all the things that Jesus did were written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it all. And so we know that Luke is being selective when he tells these six little snippets of this part of the journey. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, why? Why is Luke writing these things down out of this part of Jesus' life? Why is he capturing it? Why did Luke even write the Gospel at all? Because he wanted Theophilus, the person receiving it, to be certain of the things he'd been taught. And so what is it? That's the question we're going to ask. What is the message that Luke is trying to get home to Theophilus by writing these six things down? Hopefully we'll answer that question by the end. I'm going to leave you hanging for now. So let's let's look at them in detail. uh, And I'm going to just choose four out of the six. And we're going to choose two positive and two negatives. I thought that's balanced, you know. Um, Two positives and two negatives. The two negatives are the Pharisee and the rich ruler. The two positives are the blind beggar and Zacchaeus. But before we look at those, uh, the passage starts off in Luke 17, 20. And having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus gives an answer. And he gives quite a long uh, discussion about the kingdom of God. This is not the first time Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been saying all kinds of things about the kingdom of God. And he's been doing those things to sort of keep resetting or or bringing back their expectations about the kingdom of God. And he's also been doing it to sort of help them, those who were willing to listen or able to understand, help them to understand that the kingdom of God was sort of upside down to what everyone expected and to what we would normally think a kingdom would look like. So here's the sort of things he was saying. Uh, The least is the greatest. You know, it's like saying black is white, up is down. In is out. He said, uh, the kingdom of God has already come. And the Jewish people are like, where, where? He said, the kingdom of God should be priority number one. He said, the kingdom of God is little, but it's big. He said that by saying, it's like a mustard seed that grows into a huge tree. Or it's like yeast that goes right through the dough. I love that example. See, the Jewish people had this expectation In fact, they had two sort of, they were in two camps, the Jewish people. Some of them expected that the kingdom of God would come literally like a superhero in the sky, shooting lightning bolts and doing unbelievable, cosmic, powerful things. So they were literally expecting to see um, some kind of He-Man riding the clouds, zapping stuff. And they were waiting for that. And 
when they heard Jesus say, the kingdom of God has come, they're like, well, I missed that big, powerful display because, you know, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, and they were, they were sort of starting to wonder, well, surely Jesus can't be it because we didn't see him doing the superhero thing. The other group thought there would be normal series events, normal people, normal everyday life, but there was going to be a real kingdom. That is, there would be a king and the king would reign over a piece of land and that would be the kingdom of God, that this would be a physical, literal kingdom. And Jesus wasn't meeting anyone's expectations. He wasn't doing the superhero thing and he wasn't doing the king thing. He was doing neither. And so Jesus goes into another little session about what the kingdom of God is and what it's not uh, and what the kingdom of God will look like and what it won't look like. And you can find a similar... um, explanation from Jesus in Matthew 24. Um, But essentially Jesus says this, the coming of the kingdom of God can't be observed because it's not physical yet. It's still spiritual. This is a spiritual kingdom. And so it says the kingdom of God is inside of you. Now he's not saying to the Pharisees, hey, the kingdom of God is inside of you. He wouldn't say that to the Pharisees. He had definitely opposite views about the Pharisees. What he was really saying is the kingdom of God is internal right now. It is a spiritual thing. He also says there will be a low point before there's a high point. Read verse uh, 17, verse 25. Jesus says, but first he must suffer many things and be resurrected by this generation. You won't see the kingdom of God in its glory before you see a really, really low point. And Jesus knows already he's headed for that low point. And then he says the, the, the big day when the physical kingdom arrives, he calls that the day of the Son of Man, the big day when the physical kingdom arrives is going to be a day that comes out of nowhere, everyone will be going about the normal business, and whack, the kingdom of God will arrive. Just like the flood came on with Noah, just like uh, judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah uh, in the days of Lot, everyone will be going about their business and... It'll be urgent and immediate. The kingdom of God will be selective. That is, what happens to people will depend on your standing with God. And it'll be important to be ready because you won't have time to get ready right then. Jesus says it's important to be ready now for the kingdom because you won't have a chance to be ready when it comes. And then as if to push home some additional truths about the kingdom of God, we see these six Um, interactions or parables. And from a distance, they seem like just bits of the story, you know, then Jesus did this, then someone asked that, and it seems like just a bit of a narrative, but we're going to see exactly what Jesus was saying, or maybe what Jesus was asking in all of these things. So let's look at the first one. I'm going to flip over to the Pharisee and the tax collector. So go to chapter 18, verse 9. It's not that I don't want to read you about persistent widow, but we've already heard enough about nya 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 from women today. <laughs> I couldn't resist that. Sorry, John. Okay, so chapter 18 and verse 9. Here we go. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. This is a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, 
adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Another one of these little upside-down kingdom of God statements. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. I can, I can just see a whole lot of people getting their head in a spin about this stuff. Why did Jesus tell this parable? He told this parable because there were some people who were confident in their own righteousness. That is, I'm already good. I'm already good. And so Jesus tells a story. Assured and proud, the Pharisee struts into the temple to pray. And his heart, sorry, his prayer betrays what's in his heart. The words that are coming out. We heard this last week. The words that come out of your mouth speak of your heart. You can have good words but a bad heart. It's very hard to have a good heart and bad words. God cares about the heart. And so out of his heart, his prayer comes. And listen to his prayer. It's actually not a prayer about God. It's a, it's a really churchy, churchy way of saying, Hi, God. Look at me. How good am I? You're really lucky to have me. You're welcome. The thing is, the Pharisee's assessment of himself is based on his works. He goes on to list his credentials, and his credentials are the things that he does. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. I wonder if this is... I reckon this is probably a, a pretty condensed summary of what the Pharisee actually said. I reckon he could, he would have and could have said a lot of things, you know. I tithe my income. I tithe my time. I give a tenth of the petrol that I put in my car. On and on and on. He does things that are good. They're not bad things. They're good things to do. But he does them with a bad heart. See, the Pharisee is looking on the wrong plane. Now, when I say plane, I don't mean zoom, zoom. I mean plane like if you're a carpenter or you're physics, right? A plane is a, a, a flat surface and it can go this way, it can go that way, it can go this way, right? When he looks, when he thinks about himself and how good he is, he's only looking this way. And he looks around and he says, I can't find anyone who's as good as me. Therefore, I'm good. In fact, I'm awesome. And he tells God about it. But we're not supposed to look sideways for the judgment of our worth. In fact, God says, don't look sideways. When the Pharisee looks sideways, he does so with disdain and disgust. Disgust. Thank God I'm not like that guy, he says. You ever felt yourself saying that? I've really confessed to you, I have. I've met people and I've been really sort of grossed out or repulsed and I've thought, oh, thank goodness I don't know anyone like that. Thank goodness I didn't grow up like that. That's what the Pharisee does. Everyone else is inferior in this low category. He's not righteous. 
he thinks he is right before God because he's doing the things that God would have him do. But God would not have him look down on other people. That is not righteous. And I can tell you it's not righteous because God is not like that. Can you imagine if God was like that? What is God like? Well, we're blessed enough to have the Bible, the record of the life of Jesus. And what was Jesus like with the down and the out and the unlovely? What was he like? Well, despite being absolutely perfect, the one person who was entitled to look down on others didn't do so. Jesus didn't do that. He displayed a heart of love and mercy and compassion and humility and he reached out to the lost and the sick and the rejected. If, In fact, if God was like the Pharisee, if that was righteous, then this place would be empty. This place would be empty. None of us would be here. Contrast the tax collector says Jesus. We couldn't get a bigger contrast. The tax collector was not people's favourite person. He's repentant and ashamed and his actions display a heart that is full of guilt and shame and humility and he knows that he's got nothing to boast about. In fact, he's not even going to give a summary of what he's done. He just So he's not even going to give a list of what he's done. He just says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He just sweeps it all up into one big category and calls it sin. He says, I'm a sinner. And he looks down and he beats his chest, which was a sign of sort of self-punishment. And he says, all I can ask for is mercy. Now, up until now, you can hear the Pharisees listening to Jesus' response and they're like, yep. Yep, that's a good Pharisee. Yep, that's a, and that's an undeserving tax collector. I wonder where this story is going. And they're in agreement with Jesus until now. And then Jesus hits them with the punchline. Verse 14. It's the tax collector and not the Pharisee who went home right before God. It's the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Now, you couldn't get a more offensive thing to say to a Pharisee than the tax collector gets in and the Pharisee misses out. Another upside-down thing for the kingdom of God because the currency of the kingdom of God is not good deeds and it's not pride, it's not achievement, but it's humility and grace. And so Jesus delivers this uncomfortable truth. If you're feeling good about yourself and you're feeling confident in that, and you think that you've ticked a lot of boxes and you can hold your head up in front of God, you've missed it. You've missed the point. You've missed everything. You can't put your trust in your good deeds. You can't put your trust in your religious acts because if you do, the most religious Pharisee will miss out and the most dirty, rotten tax collector, repentant before God, will come in. Sounds like a weird place, the kingdom of God. I can see the Pharisees just looking at each other saying, did he just say what I thought he said? Did he just say the tax collector goes home? Hang on. Did he not just... Jesus is telling them God's currency, the currency of the kingdom of God. It is actually about the heart. 
It is actually about the heart and not what you do. Think about the thief on the cross. Did he have a chance to do anything right before God, anything at all? And yet Jesus looked at his heart and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. We cannot, we cannot measure ourselves looking this way. I can't look at someone and say, well, I'm better than that guy, so I feel at least a little bit good about myself. And I'm not as quite good as that guy, but I'm going to strive to be like him. It's not the point. We don't look this way, we look that way. It's Jesus. And when we look that way, we realise I'm a long way from perfect and there's only one way for me to get into the kingdom of God and that is to ask for God's mercy. God is interested in our heart and not our good deeds. I say that really carefully because I know some of you are going to think, well, hang on, does God not care about what we do? God does care about what you do, but he's interested in your heart way ahead of what you do. What God did for you is so much more important than what you can ever do for God. Because out of the heart, says Proverbs, out of your heart, everything you do flows. The Bible is consistent on this point. This is not just new. This is not just a radical thought that Jesus introduced late in his ministry. It's all through the Bible. Hosea 6.6, I want mercy, not sacrifices. Isaiah 29, these people honour me with their lips. They say the magic words, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus describes the Pharisees. I love this one. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the dish, you are like a really nice-looking glossy dish, but when I reach inside, it's rotten and filthy on the inside. It's like a coffin. You ever notice a coffin is like really super glossy? Have you ever thought about what's inside it? He said the Pharisees are like a coffin, really shiny, brass handles, but inside is dead. Or he says, or Jesus said this, and this is another corker. Jesus says to the Pharisees, hey, you guys are so religious, you've even given a tenth of your herb garden, but you've neglected the justice and the love of God. In other words, you can act religious. We can do stuff that looks great, but if we are not, so if, if God is not changing our heart, then it's like a glossy coffin. We look great from a distance. Even look great close up, you know, the shine. But inside, is dead. God doesn't actually care about your glossy outside, which is kind of a relief in a way. Because those of us who have tried to measure up by our good deeds realize that it's a really hard thing. In fact, it's impossible. God cares about our heart. So we can't trust in our actions for God's approval. Think about it this way. If you're going for a job with God, you hand your CV over the table and God says, I'm not looking at that. I'm not looking at that. I'm not interested. I want to know why you're here. Tell me about your reasons. That's what God is caring about. So my suggestion to you is this. In the kingdom of God, you can't rely on your own good actions to get you anywhere. And so I think we ought to ask ourselves this question. I know this has been really pressing on me the last little while. The question is this, what am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? What do I think is going to please God? Am I relying on my good behavior? Am I I relying on my righteous deeds? Am I feeling better about myself 
when I've done more of the good stuff than otherwise? Do I feel like, here's the big question, do I feel like my standing before God is affected by my success in getting it right? I know I do. I can tell you, I feel lousy. When I stuff up, I feel really, really bad. And I have this image in my head that I've, I've sort of slipped back and that there's a distance now between me and God. That is not the truth. If I've been saved by Jesus, I'm in his family. I'm a son. And God is not judging me by my actions. He cares about my actions because they show my heart, but he cares about my heart. Kind of ironic, I reckon, sometimes. Christians, the definition of a Christian, someone who realizes they're a sinner, they're bad inside, we need God, and so we accept Jesus. And then we come to church, pretend to be good, but we're all here because we actually know we're all bad. Can we stop pretending that? Oh, maybe it's me. Um, I'd like to one day just walk up to someone in church and say, hey, my name's Andy, I'm a rotten sinner. How are you going, Andy? Well, you know, I needed Jesus as much this week as ever. Let's be the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Let's not pray to God about ourselves. Let's thank him for what he's done. Let's move on. I'm going to pick up again uh, in Luke 18, verse 18. And the next example, another negative example, is the rich ruler. A certain ruler, uh, verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one's good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. Well, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. I'll stop there. This guy's a, a young ruler. He's, he's a politician. He's Jewish. He knows, he knows the law. And he's a smooth talker. You notice that? He, he almost like ingratiates himself to Jesus in order to get a, a more positive response. Oh, good teacher. Uh, ever, ever seen those guys in the shop? They come in and say, hey, lovely. Could I have a, this or a that? And they like try to butter up the person who's serving them. And sometimes they get slapped down and sometimes the lady at the store goes, oh. This guy, he gets slapped down. I'm not suggesting you try it, by the way. Uh, just be really selective about that. Um, this guy gets slapped down. Jesus puts him there and says, hey, don't say that if you don't mean it. Don't call me good. Only God's good. So don't be buttering me up. Let's talk about the real issue. And on questioning... The man claims to have kept all the commandments of God that relate to his fellow man. He hasn't murdered anyone. He hasn't slept around. He hasn't done all his other stuff. 
But Jesus looks past his actions. Again, Jesus is not looking at his good deeds, doesn't care about his CV. And he looks right into his heart and says, yeah, there's still something in the way here, mate. And he says to this guy, essentially, your wealth is an idol for you. You need to get rid of it. Try this. Get rid of it all. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. And you'll have riches in heaven. He doesn't say just get rid of everything. He says, hey, here's an exchange that's really hard to say no to. Now you think, surely this guy, I mean, he's just said, hey, Jesus is a good teacher. This guy's going to listen. Will he not? He's getting an answer to his question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, get rid of that idol and put me in instead. Get rid of your wealth. I'm not not listening to what you've done. Get rid of your wealth and come and follow me instead. Exchange your wealth, your earthly wealth, for heavenly wealth. Surely this guy will listen. He's been delivered exactly what he asked for. Or did he? He wasn't really He wasn't really asking for this kind of answer. In fact, if you look at his question, he says, he doesn't say, what do I need to give up to have eternal life? He says, what must I do to have eternal life? How can I earn it? How can I achieve it? I've got 99% of the way there. Where's my 1%? Jesus, tell me with a thing. And Jesus says, I'm not going to answer you think the way I am. This is not the kind of answer you think you're going to get. The question coming back is, which would you prefer, heavenly riches or earthly riches? Are you willing to give up everything you've got and just trust in Jesus alone? Wow, it's a hard-hitting statement. And this guy says, sorry, sorry, stop. You're asking too much. You're asking too much. I thought I had a righteous heart. I thought I could get there by myself. And you're saying that I can't. I'm not going to accept that. Funnily enough, the question was not really whether the guy sold everything or whether he sold half or whether he sold 80%. What Jesus was doing really was fingering the guy's heart and saying, right there, there's the issue. The issue is not with what you're doing or what you're not doing. There's not one more thing to add on to your list of commandments that you've followed. That's not the problem here. The problem is your heart. This guy was not willing to trust Jesus if everything else was taken away from him. And I started asking myself the same question. Would I be willing to trust God? That is, when I say trust God, I mean still believe that God is good and still believe and act in accordance with that belief that he's the only source of my salvation. Would I still trust God in that way if I were to lose my job? If I were to lose all my investments? If I were to lose my ability to work? I might not get sacked. I might lose my ability to work. One of my partners had a stroke a few years back. He can, can't work anymore. All his, all his mental functions are impaired. What if I was to lose my eyesight? What if, I was, what if I was to lose the things that I really love to do, play sport? What if I was to lose my ability to play music? What if my fingers got damaged or, you know, some 
what if you're a singer and your voice gave out on you? What if I was to lose one of my kids? What if I was to lose the dream of having kids? What if I was to lose my best friend? What if I was to lose my home? Think about all these people in Syria. I don't know if you've seen the before and after photos. They're incredible. What if I was to lose my dream of ever having a home? Would I still think that God is good? Would I still think that he is the one single source of my salvation? I don't want you to think that God is up there, you know, turning up the pressure dial until you, until you get to breaking point. But God is a loving father who says to us, are you willing to trust me and only me? Are you willing to trust me and only me? I have the best for you. Will you trust me to give you the best? Stop trying to substitute for other things. The rich ruler was trying, he was hoping that he could rely on his wealth as assurance and his good deeds for his righteousness. That is, I do these things and God gives me a tick and I have these things to give me a good life. You know, this life, the afterlife. He's got both uh, covered. And Jesus so eloquently points out, actually, you know what? You can't rely on either of those things. In God's kingdom, neither of those things are going to get you there. And so we come back to the same question again. What am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? Am I trusting in myself to provide for myself in this life? Am I relying on my wealth, my abilities, my good deeds as my ticket into heaven? I read some stats uh, just recently. They, I don't know when they did it, and I don't know who did it. It could be a completely bunkum survey. But they had some nonsense figure, like 60-something percent of people said, if you do more good than bad, you will get into heaven. That's the prevailing view. If you do more good than bad, you just got to sort of even up the ledger. I'm really grateful that that's wrong. Otherwise, I'd be in big trouble. Let's move on. Luke 18.35. We pick up again there. And Jesus is still on his way to Jerusalem. He knows where he's going. He knows why he's going there. He's trying to explain it to his disciples. They're not really seeing it. Uh, they obviously see it later because they've written about it later. And he's getting. Jesus is getting towards Jericho. Jericho is a city. It's not far from Jerusalem. It's about... 25 k's as the crow flies. Uh, it's a fair journey. I'm not sure if you could really do it in a day. Um, but as Jesus is coming close, the crowd starts buzzing, and this beggar, this blind beggar, whose sole source of income is just standing there with his unseeing eyes, holding out, saying, can you spare me some change? Uh, this is how he earns his income. He basically lives off the generosity or not generosity of others. Uh, and the crowd's buzzing, and he says, hey, what's going on? And they say to him, Jesus is coming. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, he realizes, this is my chance. This is my chance to get in front of Jesus. And he calls out at the top of his voice. Calls out at the top of his voice. Let me pick it up. Uh, Jesus, verse, uh, verse 38. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, 
have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, uh, saw it, they also praised God. This guy calls out, son of David, have mercy on me. This, the son of David phrase, this guy, he's essentially saying, hey, Jesus, I know you're the Messiah. He's calling out Messiah, God's chosen one. Have mercy on me. Remember me. Listen to me. Don't ignore me. The blind beggar's call is actually very similar to the tax collector in the temple in that parable, isn't it? Have mercy on me. He doesn't come presenting any merit. Hey, Jesus, check this out. Hey, Jesus, look what I've done. The beggar has none of that to offer. He just calls out. He trusts his welfare into the hands of Jesus. And like the simple faith of a child, he's wholly and completely dependent on Jesus to answer. And Jesus, again, in this way of demonstrating the upside-down valleys of the kingdom of God, he takes the path that nobody expects. Everyone is saying, hey, Jesus is important and he's coming through, so get out of the way and shut up. And Jesus stops and he says, I want to talk to that guy. I want to hear from him. This is the, this is the kingdom of God. This is a place where servants are great and achievements count for nothing. So Jesus stops and he says, I want to hear from this guy. And he doesn't say, tell me about your life. Tell me all the things you've done for me. Could I see your CV? He's just interested in the guy's heart. And so he asked him, he said, what do you want from me? What are you, why are you calling out to Jesus? Ironic, isn't it, that the rich ruler who had everything missed Jesus. And the blind beggar who had nothing saw Jesus for who he was. And the blind man says, I know you can restore my sight. I know you can do that for me. Other people give me food. Other people give me money. But you can go to the root of my physical problems. You can cure the problem, not just patch it for a day. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. In other words, you've chosen to put your faith in the right person, mate, and let me prove it to you. Let me prove to you that you've put your faith in the right place. I find this this particular little interaction uh, really challenging uh, on a whole lot of levels. Um, and ultimately, you'll see we come back to that same big question. But here's, here's a couple of other things. How do we treat those who are less important? How do you and I, how do we as a church treat those people who are less important? Are we like Jesus? Are we seeking them out? Are we giving them time? Or are we saying, hey, there's important stuff going on here. Could you please step aside? I was reminded of a little interaction that happened here in this building once. A guy came in, I think he was a guy from the dining room, uh, and he came in and he Obviously, he's not used to church culture, and he was he was looking for Pete Musket, I think. Where's Pete? Um, that's, the, that's the question the guy was asking. Where's Pete? Uh, and he came in, and he was noisy, and he was interrupting things, and someone was preaching, and 
I've got to say, I hate to say it, but a number of people turned around and told him to shut up. We did exactly what people did to this blind man. We said, hey, shut up. This is about Jesus. You can't interrupt. Looking back, I feel terrible. I almost cry when I think about that. What kind of message were we sending? Here's another question. Do we assume that ministry in our church in our church is going to be from the haves to the have-nots? The rich ruler, pretty sure he would have a position on the church board. And I'm pretty sure the blind beggar would not be asked to serve at all. And yet it was the blind beggar who understood the heart of Jesus. And the rich ruler completely missed it. Those who see Jesus most clearly are not necessarily the most visible, the most obviously qualified, and yet his heart was in the right place. And just like Jesus went to the root of this guy's physical problem, Jesus wants to get to the root of our heart problems, our life problems, right there. So let's not kid ourselves and think that if I keep the Ten Commandments or if I have good Christian disciplines or if I do the things that other people think a good Christian would do, that God will be pleased with me. Somehow those good things are going to seep into my heart. You know something? Good behaviour doesn't flow up into your heart. A changed heart flows out into good behaviour. I'll say that again. Good behaviour doesn't seep back into your heart, but a heart does show itself in the way you live and talk. I actually had an interaction. I've got time for this, yeah. Uh, I had an interaction with a guy this week. He's one of the most annoying people in my life. I'm not going to name him because some of you might know him. But <laughs> I promise you it's not anyone in this room. This guy rang me. And look, we'd been in a meeting on during the week and, and we were on opposite sides of the, uh, the point of view and it was a bit of a testy meeting, and he rang me after the meeting and he asked me, essentially he asked me whether I was really qualified to give the opinion that I was giving in the meeting. I was deeply offended. I, I swore under my breath when I hung up the phone. I said, you... And I thought to myself, no, you shouldn't say that, Andy. You shouldn't say that about someone like that. And I thought to myself, you know what? Regardless of whether I speak the words or not, my heart is still the same. I can't just say, oh, you shouldn't say that. I had to actually confess to someone, you know what? I've got a real heart issue against this guy. He really, really gets to me, and my heart towards him is wrong. I can't just say, oh, well, I'll stop saying those things about so-and-so. I need to ask God, hey, God, will you change my heart to him? You can't put a filter on a dirty river and somehow think that the cleanness is going to go upstream to the spring. We can't stick leaves on a dead tree and staple fruit to its branches and think somehow the tree will come back to life. It doesn't work that way. It only flows one way and it starts in the heart and it comes out. It doesn't go back in. What am I trusting in to make me good? What am I trusting in? Am I stapling good deeds to myself, trying to make my heart right? So it doesn't make sense, does it? 
Let's go on to the last one, Zacchaeus. So we're up to chapter 19. We made it. Ha! Take that, teaching team. <laughs> chapter 19. I'm not going to read you the whole story. We know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus lives in Jericho, and Jesus is coming through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, and again, the crowd is buzzing. There seems to be this big... It's a bit like Auskick when the kids play the dads. It's this big mob, and they're just moving. Um, that's what happens in little kids' footy. It's this big mob of 20-something kids moving, following the ball. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Now, if you don't know what a tax collector is, let me just tell you. Right, tax collectors collected money from the Jewish community, the Jewish people, and they used it to pay the Roman government. The Romans were not friends of the Jews. They were enemies. They had come in and occupied their country. Tax collectors essentially were traitors. They were taking your money and giving it to your enemies. Not the way to make friends with your neighbours. They also earned earned their income by commission. So I take $110 from you, thanks. I pocket the 10 and I give the 100 to the government. But actually, the tax collectors used to bid for the right to be a tax collector. It was like a privatised tax office. I wonder if we can... I wonder if we did that, it might be more effective. So they had this, they had this privatised system. So the more I paid to the government, the more I had to recoup from you for myself before I paid the bit that they were expecting. So instead of paying 110 to me, I might need to, you to pay me 150 because I paid a lot for my tax licence. So I'm going to ask you for 150. I'll pocket the 50 and give the 100 off. It was actually a really... It was a, it created a lot of resentment not only because they were taking money and passing it to the government, but they were getting wealthy off that exercise. And so they were the lowest of the low. Just like the blind beggar, like, like the blind beggar, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but his limitation is not being blind. His limitation that he's short. I can identify with Zacchaeus. I'm not a tall guy. I have tall friends. Uh, and so Zacchaeus does something that I've never thought of before. He runs ahead down the street. He, re- he figures Jesus is coming this way. He runs ahead to where the crowd is not. He climbs a tree and he waits. And you notice that Jesus does exactly the same thing with Zacchaeus as he did with the blind beggar. He responds to the heart of the person who's seeking after him. And despite everyone else's view about tax collectors, Jesus stops and just like he said to the blind beggar, hey, he says, I want to talk to you. Jesus says, I think I'll come to your place, Zacchaeus. Come on, let's go. Again, Jesus demonstrates this upside-down value system in the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus hang out with a tax collector? They are terrible people. Doesn't he know who this guy is? Does Jesus understand what he's doing to his reputation here? You can't expect to be the Messiah of the Jewish people if you're going to hang out with tax collectors. But Jesus still does. And they start to, no, 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 about it. And while they're all muttering about it, Jesus is there speaking with Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus is experiencing the impact of Jesus on his heart. And how do we know that Jesus changed his heart? Because voluntarily Zacchaeus stands up and says, you know what, I'm going to give half of everything I've got to the poor. He sees that he's gotten rich, he's gotten rich from the poverty of others and he wants to demonstrate repentance. He wants to turn it around and say, I'm going back from this point. Funnily enough, the rich ruler was asked to give 100% to the poor. Zacchaeus voluntarily gives 50% and Jesus says, hey, this guy's heart is in the right place. See, it was never about the percentage, was it? 
It was only about the heart. And in making restitution to those people who he's cheated, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give back four times, I think he says. Fourfold. In the Old Testament law, which Zacchaeus would have known, you were typically required to pay restitution by paying an extra 20%. So if I've cheated you out of 10 bucks, I'll give you 12. In worse cases, like stealing or cheating, sometimes you had to give double. I, th- I only found one reference to where you might pay four or five times, and they were the, the worst of the worst. And Zacchaeus is saying, I'm not willing to put myself in the highest of the bad categories. I'm going to the lowest of the low. I'm a humble person who realises my wrong, and in humility I'm going to voluntarily punish myself or accept the consequences of my action, and I will give back four times. He's a bit like saying, you know what? I thought poorly of this person, and I'm going to punish myself like a murderer. Feel free to treat me like a murderer because I know my heart was wrong. He shows such humility. He doesn't try to get away with the minimum punishment. And then Jesus says this. Interesting. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. This man too is a son of Abraham. John the Baptist said in Luke 3, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't count on Abraham being your ancestor. Produce fruit of repentance. This is exactly what Zacchaeus did. He said, I'm repentant and I'm going to show it. I'm going to let it come out of my heart into my actions. And Jesus says, yep, that's what salvation looks like. That's what coming into the kingdom of God looks like. And that is a true son of Abraham. It's not about your ancestry. It's not about your family tree. God is interested in your heart. The ironic thing is only one thing can change your heart, and that's Jesus. And you just have to be like the tax collector in the temple. You just have to be like the blind beggar and call out. We actually have nothing to offer God. But God wants to change your heart. I'm going to say this, I mean, it seems pretty sort of funny, but God is, God is dying to change your heart. Do you understand that? God is dying to change your heart. In fact, he died to change your heart. He wants to change your heart so much. Jesus went out of his way for the blind beggar and he went out of his way for you and I. He didn't just stop and listen. He went all the way to the cross so that when God in his perfect judgment looks at me, he doesn't see me anymore. He sees the big shadow of the cross and I'm hiding behind it saying, don't judge me. A heart that trusts in Jesus is where the kingdom of God comes. What are you trusting in? Are you trying to staple fruit to your dead leaves, to your dead branches? Am I trying to gloss up the outside instead of letting God reach onto the inside? I'm going to ask the singing team and the musicians to come up and I'm going to go back to where I'm comfortable behind my bass guitar. And we're going to sing about that. Listen, listen for one line in this song. We are the broken. He is the healer. Jesus, Redeemer, mighty to save. Guys, we're not the doctor. 
with the sick.